0: Welcome to the Renovate Church Sermon Podcast. At Renovate Church, we are passionate about teaching God's Word in such a way that you really get to know the heart and character of God, and where you can apply the truth of Scripture to every aspect of living. We believe that God's Word is relevant and has the power to transform your life. We're excited for this most recent sermon, and we hope it blesses and encourages you.
1: Welcome everybody. Welcome and thank you for joining us here on our Good Friday service. Today's an interesting day. Um, I don't know about you. I'm thinking maybe you went through the same kind of things I did when I was growing up in church and trying to figure out why Good Friday was actually called Good Friday. Kind of didn't make sense. Um, It's pretty complicated actually but you know, it's without question one of the greatest days in church history, in the world, right? In, in the world's history. But it's also equally as conflicted. You know, Good Friday, Jesus comes and he dies. But let's take a look at, let's take a look, let's take a perspective on kind of the whole thing. If you go back to, crea- to the creation account and you look at the story of God creating everything you see that for five days he fills the heavens and the earth with everything that man could possibly want or desire all the resources abundantly so for all the history of the world lacking nothing are on the earth and in the heavens are the principalities and the spiritual laws and the heavenly hosts and all the things there that God could possibly I mean I'm sorry that man could possibly desire to help him understand things and God and and to do well right and everything's there. And God does this because the thing about God is he, he wants you to know. He wants to demonstrate his glory to you in showing you that he will always provide. That he will always be faithful. Right? Can you see that? He shorts us nothing. And if anything, he gives to us in an abundant manner that's, unch- that's unchallenged. So he does all that. And then comes the sixth day. And on the sixth day, which interestingly, if you follow the Jewish calendar, is a Friday. On the sixth day, he creates man. He creates the beast of the field, but he creates man. And he takes man and he sets man at the top of creation. Man is the pinnacle of creation. And he sets him at the top and he gives him rule and dominion over everything that he has made. And he hands it to him. When he does that, God's work is completed. And God takes a moment and he looks around and he sees what he has done. And he says, it's very good. Interestingly, I've always, and I'm I'm, I'm being honest. I've often thought, what would it have been like to be there at that moment when God looks around and says, it's really good. What would that have been like? <clears throat> Excuse me. Because to me, that was incredible. Because here's what you need to catch everything was perfect, because God's perfect. Everything was perfect, and everything was just the way that He wanted it. What a moment. What a moment. And by God's own words, that was actually the first Good Friday. It's a nice picture, but it doesn't stay that way, does it? It's a beautiful picture, creation. But the problem comes, and you know what the problem is because the problem is why we're here today. Right? The problem is what leads us to the cross. Man falls and sin becomes his new nature and his master. Man's no longer perfect the way that he was when God created him. And all of his offspring would also then be born into the same nature, the same fallen nature, the same sin, enslaved by the same sin master and coming to the same end, which is death. And because man was given dominion over all of creation, creation fell as well. Creation was under man's dominion, man falls, creation falls. So now fallen hearts, fallen minds, and fallen lives are the governors of the earth. and the earth is subjected now to yielding sickness, disease, decay and inevitable death. There's no getting around it. And the effects of those things built generation upon generation upon generation being unchallenged in their perpetuation. There was no way for man to get out of this. And and the one whom God adored And made for himself right made made in his own likeness and image and meant for his eternal intimacy was no longer worthy of such a beautiful thing our sin had caused an infinite separation between us and our Heavenly Father the first reaction of Adam and Eve when they sinned and they heard God walking in the garden was to run and hide because there was no question that they had an acute awareness of their sin and the breach between them and God and they ran and so what we have now is this conflict in creation what we have now is a conflict between the light of God and the darkness of sin it was now a conflict of natures his perfect selfless nature of love and in all of its glory and our sin nature of self It was an absolute incompatibility between God's perfect righteousness and man's sinful condition. Incompatible. And it made for an immeasurable divide because the nature of sin is to separate. That's what sin does. Sin separates. It separates us from God and it separates us from one another when we're sinning against one another. Sin separates. So let's look at it. Let's take another perspective. That perfect righteousness, which is who God is. God is perfectly righteous. And unrighteousness are two completely separate things. Right? Can a perfect God have an eternal intimate relationship, which is what he created us for, with his creation if they are fallen and imperfect now? Right? I guess if you wanted to lower God... And see him as we are you would say I'm not sure I see the problem because you see we we, that's the world we live in every day we're all sinners we deal with it we deal with the brokenness we deal with what it brings and we try and love each other the best that we can but that's not the way it is with God he's not like us and you can't lower him his righteousness is perfect and the intimacy with him requires something different right because because with God Him not being like us, intimacy with Him requires a likeness of nature. And sin and righteousness have no likeness of nature. Can't be done. Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians 6.14. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? So now we ask if we are the fallen ones and we are imperfect can we do anything in and of ourselves to restore ourselves back to this place that God had made us for and in to this place this perfected place where we are worthy of intimacy with him again is there anything that we can do and i'm going to say no because The only thing that imperfection has to offer, the only thing that imperfection can produce, really, is more imperfection. When we we think that we can actually contribute to this effort, to this this restoring effort, we're deceived. Because our works are just poison to the pot. Essentially, that's what it is. We're poison to the pot. And so from that standpoint, we were doomed. In the 70s, I used to go out to visit my granddad in a small Nevada town in the middle of the desert. It was 40 miles, from the, 40 miles from the nearest desert town, right? That town was. It was a neat little place. It was unique. My granddad was very unique, very interesting guy. Lots of great stories, re- led an interesting life, and he was someone who was always going to challenge you about things, teach you something that you were like, yeah, who even thought of that? You know? And I mean, he was just interesting. He was great conversation when you got into it. And he was always willing to challenge you on things. And I'm probably 14 or 15 and I'm sitting there. We're just having lunch and it's just me and him. He said, let me ask you a question. He said, if you had a straight, flat, two-mile track, you were in a car and you drove that first mile on that straight, flat, two-mile track at an average of 30 miles an hour, how fast would you have to go in the second mile to average 60 miles an hour over the two mile track? And I thought, well, that's easy. You you did 30, you're trying to get to 60, we're gonna do 90. I said, 90 miles an hour. He said, no. And I thought, well, I can't be that far off. (laughs) And I said, 120. And he went, no. And i thought about it and i realized oh great this is one of those deals where he asked me a question he knows i'm not going to answer i said i don't know he said you can't do it and i said you're only trying to get to 60 miles an hour he drove 30 the first half of it you're only trying to get to 60 miles an hour what do you mean you can't do it of course you can do it he said nope you can't do it it's impossible he said you see because you could drive the speed of light in that second mile and you still won't make 60 miles an hour over the course of those two, over the course of those two miles. He said, because you see, to average 60 miles an hour over the two-mile course, that's going to take you two minutes. And you used up your two minutes in that first mile when you drove one mile at 30 miles an hour. He said, you don't have any time left. I don't care what you do. I don't care how fast you go. You can't make it. It's impossible. It's impossible. And I always thought that that was a really great example of this sin dilemma that we have with God. That our imperfect sin nature does not possess any resources equipped to make up the separation gap or the righteousness gap between us and God. It's not there. And you're deceived if you think it is. Yet the word of God tells us that the cross does that the cross does. In its rugged and humble way, it provides us with the truths of God's glory, the power of his throne, and the sacrificial, his sacrificial heart for man. So why the cross? Why couldn't there have been another way? Why didn't he pick another way? I I don't know the answer except to, to, to rest on this, which is something I rest on a lot, and maybe you can use this. Here's the deal. God's perfect in all of his wisdom and everything he decides to do it was the way it was the way and the other thing about God is is when he selects a way, he's not doing it for a reason he's doing it for a myriad of reasons that's just the way he works but he chose the cross so it must have been the perfect way and I'd like to just look into a couple of those things the cross in a sense was just a little bit too perfect most widely known symbol in the world very simple. Two lines, right? Two lines. Two lines that are in absolute contrast of each other. One line, vertical, let's say, representing God. All that he is, all that's in him, all, all, all that is about him. The horizontal line, the contrasting line, all that is not God. All that he's not doing. All that he never desired to see and happen. And it's a simple symbol, but it demonstrates absolute contrast, which is the situation that the world and creation was in with God. But he didn't just choose the cross for what it represents symbolically. He also chose it for its cost. Because the cross to God was the most expensive thing, or we can say in this case, the most destructive thing that man ever devised crucifixions, they believe, were originated with the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Interestingly, great enemies of God, historical great enemies of the Hebrew people. They're the ones who came up with it, and yet God chose it. In in the 6th century BC, the Persians were using it. It started growing. They were using it. In the 4th century B.C., Alexander Alexander the Great comes along in his conquests and movements and things, and he brings it over towards the Mediterranean coast, Mediterranean countries, that region. And in the 3rd century B.C., it gets introduced to Rome, and Rome takes it on. Now, it's going all over the modern known world, because Rome has it, and Rome's liking it. And so for 300 years, Rome was doing that before Jesus came. And crucifixions didn't, weren't stopped until Constantine, Constantine stopped them in the 4th century A.D. So crucifixions were prevalent in the modern world for nearly a thousand years. Everybody knew what a crucifixion was. Everybody knew what a crucifixion was. And Rome had mastered it. Right? They had it down. It was considered to be one of the most horrific, shameful, brutal, humiliating modes of death imaginable. And it was meant to be exactly that. It was a public display of horror and a public stripping of your God given dignity. There wasn't a worse way to die. The price being paid by the one being crucified was everything because there was nothing left of a man when they were done with him, with his crucifixion. Your body was torn and beaten and bloody. Your honor and your dignity were ripped away, stripped from you. Your life was considered to be like chaff and worthless. You were nothing. And if you had any family or friends, they almost certainly abandoned you in your public disgrace because it was too much to bear. Think about it. Excuse me. It was, it was bad. We weren't there. But if you were there, I think, I, think you could, I think you would know that it was the most horrifying thing you'd ever want to see. <clears throat> the cross was that expensive because not only did you die this horrific death, but it destroyed your soul. It degraded you as a, as a person. It degraded your worth that God had given you. You were left with nothing. And the Roman Empire knew that. They were all about that. That was their their threat. Oh, yeah? See that? You want to be there? They knew what they were doing. And here's the deal God chose the cross anyway for Himself. So they would scourge you, they would beat you. You would go to the cross, hang on the cross, you're beaten, you're dying. And all you want to do is try and survive and live a moment longer but what you find is is that you're suffocating you're asphyxiating because you're so weak and you're so beat and your body is just screaming in shock and hanging doesn't allow you to breathe and so you'd push yourself up for every little gasp of breath you could that's what it was well if you didn't die fast enough and the guards wanted to be merciful because here's the other thing about the soldiers they couldn't leave until you were dead soldiers weren't leaving until you were dead they were gonna be in big trouble if they left before you were dead so they didn't leave so if they wanted to leave if they got tired of mocking you and doing the things that they wanted to do and they wanted to leave then they would assist you in dying they'd break your legs or they would hit you with a spear or beat you or if they really wanted to just, you know, add to the whole thing, they would put a little fire around the base of the cross and just let the smoke go up and just choke you out. But what, but what, but what wicked men intended for horror, and in the case of Jesus, the defense of their own darkness, God used for the destruction of every dark fort- fortress. He used it for the destruction of every dark fortress and to powerfully redeem all. That's what he used it for. Because at the intersection of the cross where all that conflict, I mentioned a few minutes ago, that's where all that conflict collides, is right at the intersection of that cross. That's where all that conflict collides with God's heart and his covenant with man. It's where God's light collides with darkness. It's where God's covenant of salvation collides with Satan's plan of destruction and man's absolute inability and helplessness to aid himself. And it's the intersection where God's heart and his compassion for man comes to deliver us from everything that our sin deservedly brought upon us. The intersection of the cross is the single most important meeting place between God and man in all of history. But there's one more specific thing that I want to make sure that we don't miss. Because there was something else that had to collide at the cross. And it was at the intersection of accountability between God and man. In today's world, this relative world that we live in, it's a popular thing to hear people say things like, I can't believe that a loving God could send people to hell. Well, the word send, I have a problem with the word send, because I don't think it's appropriate. But let's just, let's just put that to the side, and let's concentrate on the fact, if you can, to agree that God is loving, that he is love, and that he is righteous. And if you can, if you can accept God as love and righteous, then I have a question for you. Doesn't love and righteousness require justice? What would the world look like if we didn't have justice? Would you be able to say that love and righteousness can exist in the absence of justice? Just look around at all the problems in the world and, so in, our, and in our country, and so many of them are based and sourced at some form of injustice. If perfect love defines you, as it does God, because God is love and He is perfect love, can He turn a blind eye to this? Can He turn a blind eye to injustices? And I'm talking large or small. I'm talking to Him and to each other. I'm talking about all forms of injustice. Because, you see, if He is really love and the fullness of love and the the fullness of righteousness, He's got to be the fullness of justice. And where do you draw that line? Where do you draw that line? between each other well it wasn't that bad or whatever I'm just saying this this is love is a difficult and complicated thing love is a heavy thing and it's not for the light of heart when you really get down to it it's sacrificial it's costly and it hurts it's not the fluffy little thing that people like to make it out to be and love and righteousness do demand justice but interestingly they also demand something else in order to be complete love requires mercy love without mercy is not a complete love either it must be included but love and mercy I'm sorry justice and mercy these are two different things Justice and mercy are two different things. They're at odds at each other. But because God is love and he is righteous, he must therefore exercise absolute justice as well as absolute mercy. And he can't compromise either one because that's a compromise of his nature. And this is the conflict that only God on the cross could reconcile. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's life through his son was given over for ours. The creator paying the price in full for the sins of the created. The creator's innocent blood shed on behalf of the guilty and it was in that priceless sacrifice that our sin debt is paid and the justice of god is fully satisfied it's only by that priceless sacrifice that the justice for all of mankind over all of time no matter the degree could be satisfied and that's where we receive our forgiveness And in being forgiven, we can then enjoy His loving mercy that's bestowed upon us. That comes through to us by the reach of His grace. By grace you have been saved through faith, Ephesians tells us. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Where man was powerless, God was not. When you look around the world at all the religions and all the belief systems that are out there, what else gives you the clarity, the completion, and the freedom that Christ on the cross gives you? Where else do you find such a depth to the answers that we see? that God took upon himself the burden of this reconciliation and that he did not lay it upon your shoulders except that you should believe it, what he's done, and receive it, what he has done, and put your trusting faith in him for it. That as your creator, he's not only the giver of life, but he's he's the gracious sustainer of life. And he is the Redeemer in life. And the scorn of the cross, which the world knew, the world knew what the cross was, and what that symbol meant. And let me tell you, nobody wanted to identify with the cross, nobody wanted that identified to them. And yet, God chose the cross as his symbol of love to man when Christ hung on it. And for All the eternal and spiritual and life-giving things that came forth that day and were made possible that day on the cross because of his sacrifice. All those things have been proclaimed and pondered and and spoken of every day since. And that is never going to stop because in all of eternity there is no greater news... Than the good news of Christ. And so in that light of truth, even as horrific as Good Friday was 2,000 plus years ago, and as painful as it was to witness, you can still see the beauty of God and all that He is shining forth out of it. And today is called Good Friday because we see God's love and redemptive work in Christ bringing back into sight to those who believe what God had originally intended and set forth on that first Good Friday. When everything was perfect and just the way he wanted it. It's no wonder that the angels never stop worshiping. They never stop worshiping. And they yell, Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb.
0: Hey, we are so glad that you joined us for our service this morning if you are interested in learning about how you can start a relationship with jesus we would love to be here to talk that through with you the bible says in 1 john 5:12 that whoever has the son has life and we really believe that here at renovate so again if you want to start a relationship with jesus if you're just interested in learning more about the faith you have questions we'd love to hear from you as well or if you want to grow as a follower of jesus or get more involved in what we're doing we'd love to hear from you so just go ahead and comment on the platform that you're at or reach out to us by email at info at again we're so glad you're able to join us we hope you have a great week and we look forward to hearing from you soon